Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, the launch webinar of two remarkable books. One of them mainly on the period leading to and including the revolution. Uh, and one of them about the aftermath, particularly in uh, countries uh, abroad. But I think they go uh, together uh, very well. And they help to explain some of the complex and uh, grueling circumstances of an event that changed the whole of 20th century history, namely the Russian Revolution, um, an event that had consequences not just for Russia, uh, but for the whole of Europe and North America, and indeed the whole world of uh, the past century. We're very lucky this evening to have the authors of the two books. Um, firstly, uh, I'd like to welcome Tanya Alexandra Cameron, who is the granddaughter of the memoirist of a Russian military officer, Fyodor Olfyurev. Um, and she knew her grandfather uh, and uh, she learnt Russian uh, uh, and Russian history uh, and has produced uh, a most wonderful fluent translation of a book that's more elegant uh, in its style uh, and in many ways more informative in its content than one usually expects from uh, a military man's uh, memoir. And the book uh, on uh, Russia in War and Revolution uh, has a, uh, a, a remarkable essay giving the background and giving commentary on um, the, uh, the memoir itself uh, by Gary uh, Hamburg, who's the Otto M. Baer Professor of History at Claremont McKenna College. And Professor Hamburg is a distinguished uh, author, uh, particularly on Russia before 1917. Uh, I especially know his work on the on the on the gentry uh, before that uh, period, and this is a um, a background essay that he's written, uh, which brings brings into uh, light um, of day all of the all of the thoughts that scholars have had on Russian history following. Uh, the events that are described in the memoir. As well as that, we have another book by Anatol Shmilyov, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and is the Robert Conquest curator of Russia and Eurasia for the Hoover Institution archive. Uh, Anatol is a great collector of archives, as I know, 
for my own personal benefit. I know so, so often how many of um, the Hoover's remarkable archives have um, been pounced on by Anatole and um, brought into uh, the collection. And he's written not about Russia before 1917, but about the whites, the white army commanders, but especially the emigre diplomats who, who handled the diplomacy of anti-Bolshevik Russia in the years immediately after the uh, Russian Revolution. So this is uh, a, um, an opportunity for us to um, concentrate on uh, the run-up to revolution and the revolution and its, its uh, consequences. And I want to turn uh, the discussion over as soon as possible to uh, Tanya and Gary, who uh, will introduce Russia in war and revolution. Uh, and I think, uh, Gary, you'd like to uh, kick off um, with um, uh, your thoughts about the memoir, the remarkable memoir that you and Tanya have brought into the world. Well, I want to uh, thank you, uh, Professor Service, for your introduction and thank everybody at Hoover and especially Tanya for her work as a translator, because without all that, we wouldn't have a book to celebrate. Um, those of you who are a little familiar with Russian things and maybe with Russian literature may remember uh, a part of a novel by Mikhail Bulgakov called Master Margarita, in which um, the heroine tells the hero that manuscripts don't burn. Um, this is a fictional conceit because manuscripts are lost, they disappear, they're forgotten. There's a, a famous uh, book on Peter the Great by Alexander Pushkin, which uh, lay in a barn in his uh, family's estate for years and was partially consumed by mice, uh, the most educated mice in the world. So when a manuscript survives, uh, as this one did, the memoir that we're talking about today, it has to be regarded as a miracle. And Tanya Kamaran has uh, brought it to life with her uh, wonderful translation. The book, uh, I, I can describe briefly is about a man from the privileged classes of Russia. He was born in 1885. 
He was educated in the finest institutions of the empire. So in the school of pages, which was a kind of residential military academy dating uh, to Peter the Great's time in the 18th century for its foundation. And then he finished his education in the Russian War College, uh, the Nicholas Military Academy, and was in the last class to graduate before uh, the Great War. So he graduated in 1914. Fyodor Sergeyevich our hero, was a remarkable observer of people. Um, he, at the core of pages, met um, leading figures, including Nicholas and Alexander in the government and also the royal family. He observed them up close. Um, his education was part of the socialization process for military people. And he gives uh, an insight into uh, how things uh, were organized in the academy, the ethos amongst the cadets. And then um, later when he talks about his career at the War Academy, he talks about Russian strategy before the First World War. Along the way, just after he graduated from the School of Pages, he participated in the suppression of the revolutions of 1905 to 1907. And this occasioned in him some rueful thoughts about the privileges of his own class and made him think about whether the old regime in Russia would survive very long. The bulk of the memoirs has to do with the First World War and Ophelia saw action uh, repeatedly in, in this period as a junior officer and then as a more uh, senior officer. And by 1917, um, he was posted to the general staff in Mogilyov, uh, which was uh, both staff headquarters and a kind of political center for the country because the czar was there. And so uh, from his perspective, first on the front and then uh, at this um, posting in Mogilyov, Alferiev observed the coming of the revolution, the defeat of the country's army, and ultimately in December of 1917, he was a duty officer when General Dukonin uh, was murdered by Bolshevik forces. So his memoir gives a remarkable clear picture of the ruling classes of Russia, of the war, of the revolutionary year. And then uh, as a kind of a postscript, uh, Alferiev and his wife 
made their way to Kiev and then Odessa uh, during the beginnings of the Civil War. And they saw a terrible fighting there. And they were uh, amongst the last people evacuated from Odessa in uh, spring of 1919. So that's, that's the framework and content of this exceptional memoir. Thanks very much, Gary. I, I wonder if Tanya could talk about uh, her grandfather and uh, the, the memoirs that he left her. Yes. Um, my grandfather was a wonderful man, but before I go on, I want to thank everyone at the Hoover that have put so much work into this and helped. And, and to Dr. Hamburg for the wonderful um, introduction and the companion piece. I learned so much from that. You were like a detective and you were right on with so many things. But um, anyway, I, I guess I'll go back to the, when I first got them. My grandfather pulled them out of a closet. One of the last times I saw him, he met his great-grandchildren and, and he pulled it out and he said, Tanya, I want you to do something with this. I'm just too old and tired now. And I promised him I would. And now I'm old and tired, <laughs> but it's gotten done. And it, it's quite a journey because um, I had to learn Russian. If I studied Latin in high school and then French and Italian at Stanford. But I didn't study Russian, and I don't know why that was. But I had the opportunity uh, when I finally had the manuscript in hand to study Russian at Montana State University for um, one year there. It was intensive, and then a second year around my kitchen table. But um, anyway, I decided to go to the Soviet Union. I took some Russian history. And I wanted to follow in my grandfather's footsteps. And I spent two and a half months there and coming in from the north and to St. Petersburg, but it was Leningrad then. And then traveling um, to all the places that I could think of that he had been and to the palaces, uh, then to the province where he was born and grew up on an estate in Tver and then down to Moscow. Um, at that point, I took the Trans-Siberian. He didn't, he didn't do that, but I thought as long as I was there and the mass of the country, it, it's hard to explain, but 11 time zones. And uh, I stopped in Novosibirsk and um, Yaroslav in Novosibirsk. And, and the interesting thing about Novosibirsk was they had no hot water. It was in the summer, and when I went to the hotel, we were staying at, so there's no hot water. And they said, well, everyone goes to their dacha at this time because it's centrally located. I'm a town of a city of a million people. They were fixing the water and they didn't have hot water. So, but anyway, uh, it was quite an adventure. And then I came back and went to uh, Kiev and uh, Odessa and then to uh, well, the Crimean and Yalta. But uh, it was just, for me, it was wonderful being in where he had been 
And when I was in the Winter Palace, I thought about how the shot came in the window. He was standing behind the Tsarina and they were mm. doing the blessing of the water ceremony uh, uh, of the Neva. And, and it could have hit her or him. And he just watched the ball roll on the floor. But I stood at kind of at that window looking out <laughs> thinking, gee, you know, but it brought it all to life. And I am so, it's, it's just enriched my life so much. I'm so glad that, um, that he asked me to do it. And uh, it took a long time and there was an interruption. I had, when we, I came back from the Soviet Union, I just had the time to work on it because my children were in college. And um, I just sat in. And, and then the early 90s, I had 500 pages done. I had recopied maps. I was in the Montana State University Library because they had uh, Soviet encyclopedias and Ukrainian dictionaries because my grandfather, he had some Ukrainian in there, some German, some French. French was easy <laughs> and the Russian. But uh, I just was living in the library. And then uh, everything stopped. My husband took early retirement. He was a professor at the university. And we moved to Great Falls because we had to manage the family ranch. And I thought, now, you know, his family had been in agriculture since his grandfather had uh, homesteaded here from Scotland. And um, and then I thought, I'm doing a lot of the same things my great-grandmother in Russia did. Uh, helping. <laughs> I, I was helping some of our employees get GEDs and uh, we had health insurance for our people and profit sharing pension plan. And I was kind of CFO and handling all that. And sometimes I cooked for the crew and sometimes I cleaned the bug house, but we had sheep and cattle and props. And I know my, um, my husband sort of did the same thing that Janishka's father was doing. He worked with extension. He had lots of experiments going on. He wanted to improve production and the land. And of course he was a biologist, so he could do all that. Mm. And uh, so there- Could I divert us a little bit, Tanya? I'm sorry to be uh, a little um, interventionist. Um, uh, otherwise, we're going to run out of um, uh, time. Right. Um, uh, what I'd like to um, divert us to is one question that came out of the book, I think, from both from your wonderful translation and Gary's uh, background essay was the First World War seems to have such a big, big impact on what happens next. So what do the two of you think about that? How, how much did the war bring about the revolution and how much was it Russian history from way back that made Russia fall apart in, in the way that it did? I don't know if you want to take that first, Gary, or... Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it if you wish. Um, I, I think that uh, if 
Piotr-Sergeyevich Alferiev was of two minds. On, on the one hand, um, in 1912, two years before the war, he described the monarchy as uh, a living corpse. And elsewhere in the memoirs, he talks about the monarchy um, as a vast structure eaten by termites. But on the other hand, uh, <coughs> it would have been hard for him to anticipate that the regime would fall apart and so violently, dramatically, and irrevocably as it did in 1917. And the immediate cause of that would have had to have been the war. So I think his, his sense um, uh, was that uh, the war was decisive in uh, toppling an already rickety structure, uh, monarchy mm -hmm. and social mm -hmm. class structure. So yeah. that's, that's my guess. And, and, and Tanya, what do you, did, did your grandfather ever talk, talk about this sort of, I mean, I, he, I can remember very distinctly when the university students were um, demonstrating during the Vietnam War. He told me that it reminded him of the 1905 revolution. And he was um, on a horse and it was when he was um, um, page to the Tsarina and, and he was stationed there outside the palace and they were, they were supposed to stop the crowd from crossing a bridge. And, and he, he said, oh, there was this young university student that yelled at him, oh, so young and such a villain. And they were yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he remembered that so clearly. And, and um, he said they were able to very slowly move through the crowd and prevent them from crossing the bridge and everything was settled. But he was, he was thinking, you know, he was in San Francisco and it was in the 60s and mid 60s and, and the students were demonstrating. Uh, so. I, I have the, um, from what both, both of you have said, I, I, I do agree with it. I think, I think a lot of the ruling elite I don't know if you agree with this. A lot of the ruling elite before 1917, it was as if they had a, a collective foreboding that this is a system of rule that that's under threat. And um, so many of them were pretty pessimistic, even though the Russian army didn't do too badly. Well, it didn't do badly at all um, in 1915, 1916. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Gary? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. There are intimations that if Russia would fight the Germans in 1914, it would bring about the 
end of the empire. And uh, there's a famous um, right-wing uh, political activist named Durnavov, who more or less predicted, prophetically or not, mm. that a revolution yeah. would transpire in Russia in, in the event of war. Um, I, I think that the uh, rulers of the country had for a long time been worried about revolution. The great paradox um, is that when it came, that is in the form of the street demonstrations in Petrograd in early 1917, nobody realized at first that this was a revolution that they were witnessing. So uh, the revolution was long awaited, but it caught people by surprise nevertheless. Thank you both of you, both Tanya and Gary. That's a, um, a, a wonderful start. One theme that comes out of this is, uh, for me, reading Alfieri's, uh, uh memoir, is his regret, his feeling of guilt almost, that uh, the, the ruling classes in the Russian Empire hadn't done more to to eliminate um, ignorance in the country. Done more about education. Do Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, my grandfather really thought that education was so important, and even on the estate, his mother would bring in some children, and and they they were learning. Um, she, she tried to help, but I think she was instrumental in, in his worldview. Uh, she uh, would reprimand him if he, he said something that was, uh, you know, contradictory or racist or to uh, Jewish people, for instance. Um, I, I, think, I think his parents raised him to be... Um, to have all these failings for people. And he, and he really loved the, his mm. playmates, the peasant children in the village. So I think he understood. And one thing he remembered, I remember him telling me that, that one of his best memories was teaching the illiterate soldiers, I don't know, his unit, um, how to read and write. And years later, he remembered their names. It was, it just, uh, so that's one thing that struck me, that uh, uh, he, he could see the importance of education. So that's very, very moving. I think I think we've got a question. To, um, yes, we have a question. Yes, we have a question from Fred. Fred asked, "Could the whites have won in any scenario?" Go ahead. Should I tackle that? Yes. Could they have? Yeah, won? you have a go at that, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I think from the perspective of our, our hero, the answer is no. And the reason is uh, that, that he provides in his memoir is the, the whites didn't have a coherent ideology, domestic ideology, 
that would compete uh, with the socialist or Bolshevik uh, ideology that uh, that was challenging uh, the the old regime and its remnants. So, so his sense is is no, and. I wonder if there's much uh, disagreement about that amongst historians. I mean, I rather doubt it these, these days. Um, I felt that my grandparents were very perceptive. Babushka and Jadishka, they really saw the situation and they had to get out. And it saved the whole family, the lives of all of them. And um, so that's what I can add. Well, I, I noticed that it, uh, it's the half hour. So I'd like to thank uh, Tanya Alexandra Cameron and Gary Hamburg for um, a really informative and uh, inspiring commentary on the book that the two of them have produced and move on to Anatol Shmelyov. Uh, again, there'll be a Q&A after Anatol's um, presentation. As I've already said, Anatol is uh, the Robert Conquest curator uh, uh, at Hoover for Russia and Eurasia. And uh, he's been working for many years, I know, uh, on his book, In the Wake of Empire, and um, much anticipated, but well worth uh, waiting for, covering the years 1917 to 1920. So this will take us through, building on perhaps the last question that was asked in the previous Q&A. So Anatole, would you like to um, introduce your book. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction and as well as for the sort of the lead-in question <laughs> that I guess I could try to address uh, right, off, uh, right off the bat. Well, you know, historians are used to explaining what happened and why it happened, and it's much more difficult to try to explain why something else didn't happen. So that's, uh, you know, an unavoidable uh, difficulty in, in trying to answer a question like this, you know, what, what uh, potentially could have happened. But I think Professor Hamburg is absolutely on the mark that uh, the whites simply didn't have, well, they didn't have two things. Number one is they didn't have a dynamic, charismatic personality of the type of Lenin uh, that the Bolsheviks had until the very end when General Vrangel appears. I believe he probably was the only one who had the charisma to pull anything off, but he came at the very end. He came too late, essentially. And the other problem was, of course, uh, exactly what Professor Hamburg mentioned, which was the lack of a uh, complete uh, domestic program for the country. What the whites had was, we call them the whites as opposed to the reds, uh, what the whites had was essentially 
a program of non-predetermination. In other words, the idea was to bring Russia to some kind of national assembly, which would then decide the form of government, the structure of the state, uh, the rights and privileges of the various um, component classes and so on and so forth. And, uh, and of course, decide the land question, which was you know, the main underlying issue that the peasantry, yeah. which composed the bulk of the population had. But none of this was done. This was all put off. The idea was military victory had to be achieved. And once that military victory was achieved, then all these other questions could be resolved. But of course, this was putting the cart before, before the horse. And this was precisely the problem that, uh, that the whites had. Um, but to go back and sort of introduce uh, my book, then, well, I'll pick up where Alfieri's memoir leaves off, which was the evacuation of Odessa, which at the time was occupied by French troops. Now, why was Odessa now in Ukraine, uh, but at that time in southern Russia on the coast of the Black Sea, occupied by French troops in 1919? Well, this is the story that uh, I try to cover in my book which begins in 1917 with the collapse of the provisional government, which left Russian diplomats abroad without a country to represent. They were still, in many cases, officially acknowledged as the representatives of Russia, but Russia essentially no longer existed. It had broken out into civil war. There were unrecognized governments everywhere, but there was no real recognized uh, government. And so one of the first things that the Russian diplomats abroad had to do was to try to help the allies formulate policy uh, in relation to Russia, as well as help the Russians themselves try to organize a government. And of course, most of these diplomats were anti-Bolsheviks. There were a very few, a handful, who um, left their posts or acceded to uh, um, Bolshevik demands to represent them. But most of them were anti-Bolshevik. And so they tried to assist the allies in trying to understand the situation in Russia to some degree of effectiveness, depending on the various countries that they uh, were located in. But generally speaking, without much effectiveness, because there was no real Russia that they could represent. Nevertheless, by the end of 1918, there were governments in place uh, in Russia. There was Admiral Kolchak's government in Siberia. There was the government of Southern Russia under General Dinikin in uh, the South. There was also a regional government in North Russia. And there was eventually uh, a small um, white army also in Northwestern Russia trying to take the former capital, Petrograd from the Bolsheviks. But really it was Admiral Kolchak who was recognized by all the other Russians as being the supreme leader. That was his official title of Russia. And yet he was unrecognized by the allies. And this is the reason why most historians have kind of tended to ignore this, uh, this subject. Because really what historians had been looking at for the past 80, well, 100 years now, was uh, the origins of Soviet Western relations. And of course, this was a primary interest during the Cold War, how to understand the development of the Cold War, how to understand the development of relations between the Soviet Union and Western countries. Uh, you can only do it by going back to the origins. And so a lot of um, material, whole shelves of, uh, well, you can see some of them behind me, <laughs> whole shelves of books were written on the origins of 
Soviet-Western relations. There's Richard Ullman's three volumes on Anglo-Soviet relations covering the period from 1917 to 1921. George Kennan, the famous diplomat, wrote a two-volume history of Soviet-American uh, relations that only actually goes up to about the middle of 1918. So he could have continued and written several more volumes. So a lot has been written on this issue, but the anti-Bolsheviks have been by and large, had been by and large ignored uh, by historians because they lost the civil war and therefore why bother studying them? They're kind of irrelevant. Well, what I wanted to do was to make them more relevant and to try and express their own interests in the course of this period and then put these interests in connection with allied policy uh, to sort of deepen and make the analysis more subtle in terms of trying to understand why the Civil War went the way that it did, but also why allied intervention, including the intervention of France and Southern Russia, went the way that it did and why the Bolsheviks ultimately won. And so one of the arguments that I make in the book is that really, the foreign policy of the whites, it had, and this was of course, uh, you know, as I say, it's domestic policy that led to the white uh, collapse in the civil war, but it's really foreign policy that has to do with the subject uh, of, of, uh, of my book, which is trying to understand relations with the allies and the allied intervention in Russia, why it was ultimately um, counterproductive and even contradictory. Well, really uh, the whites were pursuing three major goals. One was diplomatic recognition of their government, of Admiral Kolchak's government. This was necessary in order to free, to free up credits that had been granted to the provisional government, that, but that were frozen after the Bolshevik takeover. And these credits were needed to purchase military supplies to arm the forces that were fighting the Bolsheviks. Um, there was also the issue of Russia's territorial integrity. This was very important to the whites. So this was really the fundamental point, not just of their foreign policy, but of their domestic policy as well because it was very difficult for the whites to try and bring together all of the different anti-Bolshevik forces. They consisted of everyone from monarchists to social, socialist revolutionaries. All of these people were opposed to the Bolsheviks, but they were also opposed to each other. They couldn't stand each other. And so the idea was to try to find some way of unifying them. And the unifying idea was expressed in a slogan, Russia great, united, and indivisible. <clears throat> and this indeed was a policy that uh, could have potentially been followed by everyone from Kerensky of Ksientiev and the other socialist revolutionaries all the way through to the monarchists. They were all agreed on this point. But this point uh, was precisely um, not uh, favored by, of course, the nationalities uh, who, of the former Russian Empire who were trying to establish their own independent states, as well as by certain uh, forces in the allied countries, which were for their own reasons also um, not particularly interested in seeing a huge monolithic Russia looming over Europe and potentially um, influencing the balance of power in ways in which um, other European countries, uh, which other Euro European countries did not find acceptable. So in this way, Russian foreign policy becomes somewhat contradictory, uh, contradicting the interests with Russian interests contradicting the interests of the allies. And of course, the third uh, major point of white foreign policy was acquiring military aid in order to produce victory. And this 
in concert with the previous point, the maintenance of Russian territorial integrity, which was potentially contrary to interests of other countries, really brought white foreign policy into conflict uh, to some degree with other countries. And so this is, uh, you know, these are some of the topics that I explore in the book. And I think uh, I'll probably end there right now. Mm. In the, with the hope that we'll bring up more of this in, in the discussion in the question and answer period. Thank you. Well, th thanks very much, Anatole. That was also a, a wonderful exposition of uh, great concision. Uh, I wonder if I could lead, lead on uh, to this. You, you've mentioned um, that, the, that the whites were... Uh, um, very divided. Um, the diplomats that you've uh, looked at, were they, were they competent? Oh, that's a great question. So the diplomats uh, had various backgrounds. Some of them were Tsarist diplomats, including uh, Kolchak's foreign minister, Sergei Sozonov, who had been the Imperial Russian foreign minister. Now, Historians are themselves divided as to Sazonov's own competence uh, in, uh, in uh, various matters. Generally speaking, as Imperial Foreign Minister, I would say that um, he was competent. But of course, he had his own uh, quirks, and some of these worked against him. During the period that we're talking about, when he was already Kolchak's Foreign Minister, <clears throat> he was completely out of tune with what was going on in the world and disconnected uh, from what was going on uh, in Europe. And in fact, none of the allied leaders really heard him out or wanted to hear him out because to them, he represented sort of the reactionary old Tsarist regime and therefore he was of little interest. When uh, the big four uh, at the uh, Paris Peace Conference invited a Russian representative to speak, it wasn't him. It was the popular socialist uh, Nikolai Tchaikovsky, uh, a namesake of the famous uh, composer. Uh, and he was invited to speak before them. So now he was also representing Kolchak and he was also um, in support of Kolchak's movement, but he came from a totally different background. Now, as to the rest of the diplomats, it was kind of the same issue. Some of the diplomats still in the Russian service were Tsarist diplomats. Uh, they were competent in their own ways. But again, as representatives of the old regime, they were kind of um, considered uh, not quite uh, acceptable uh, to society after the, after the Russian Revolution. Whereas others, for example, Boris Bakhmetsev in the United States and Vasily Maklakov in France, they represented uh, Russian liberal society. They were prominent in liberal circles even before the revolution. And so they had, they were much more effective, especially Bakhmetsev in the United States. He was quite effective actually. Uh, and uh, Maklakov had a certain problem, which was that <laughs> he arrived in France just on the eve of the overthrow of the provisional government. And he was never actually able to present his letters of accreditation to the French government. So he ultimately, even though he was kind of accepted, he didn't have the official position of ambassador. Mm. And so this complicated his, uh, his position. Bakhmetsev did have the official position. So I'll stop there. That's, uh, um, that leads me to my second question, uh, which is, um, 
Western leaders were having to make make sense of a of a country they they hadn't really thought of very much about in previous years. And to what extent were the white diplomats um, put at a disadvantage by some of the some of the allied uh, initiatives? Um, Lloyd George was less than happy about what he saw as French aggressiveness towards the Bolsheviks. And, and there was the US bullet mission to um, seek some sort of rapprochement with Soviet Russia. How much did this um, affect the, the diplomacy of the white cause? Yeah, so the whites were at a distinct disadvantage here in that they really didn't have much information on what the Western leaders wanted, uh, what they mm. knew, what they didn't know, what they were planning, what they uh, expected. And so most of the information that uh, uh, both the white leadership in the country, as well as the diplomats abroad got was from either um, uh, newspapers, or the salons in Paris where uh, the various representatives of the allied governments would meet uh, with, with uh, <laughs> French society as well as whichever white diplomats uh, were present and they would have these discussions there in person. So as a result, the whites really didn't get any good information on what Western policies were, which is on top of the fact that Western policies were very often contradictory themselves. I mean, you speak of Lloyd George, he had one policy, but Winston Churchill had a completely different approach. Winston mm, Churchill mm, mm, was mm, very mm. much in support of the whites. He did everything in his power. Now, Winston Churchill, I should say, at that time was the British uh, War uh, Undersecretary for War, so War Minister, um, and he was trying everything that he could to help the white movement, sending yeah. supplies and uh, promoting the use of force, which is to say um, actual allied or British troops in the region, uh, whereas Lloyd George was far from in support of uh, any action of this nature. He simply sort of let it happen, I think, uh, because uh, he had other things on his plate. Lloyd George was busy with many things. Uh, and plus, foreign policy was not his area of expertise. Uh, he was really, he had built his career on domestic policies. And so what was going on abroad was of uh, comparatively little interest to him. Well, there are other things besides that, but, uh, but I won't go into too much detail. But this is part of the problem is the whites never got enough information, enough good information on what uh, the West wanted. Um, but they also uh, were at a complete disadvantage in terms of their own powers of representation because they were all unrecognized uh, as, uh, as the representatives of, um, of the white governments and so they were never really properly consulted just every once in a while they would be brought out to speak before a commission of the paris peace conference or before the big four as uh, tchaikovsky was and even then they didn't get full information because the real discussion went on after they had presented their case and left i think you're right about the uh the contradictions inside the allied uh uh discussions it makes it uh, well I, I i suppose we have to um we have to remember i don't know if you agree about this but we have to remember how difficult it was 
at the end of the war for anyone to make sense of the politics that were um, the consequence of, of war. And I suppose the whites said, look, there's a very, very simple thing. And that is that um, Russia is being brutalized. I mean, whatever message they had, um, that was that was at the base of the base of it that something absolutely terrible was happening at the eastern end of of Europe. That's absolutely true. And on top of that, the Western leaders, to a certain degree, felt threatened, of course, by what was going on in Russia, uh, ultimately, yeah. especially when it began to spill outside the borders of the country with the revolution in Hungary and in uh, revolutionary movements in Germany, and then, of course, the Red yeah. Scare in the United States. But generally speaking, they were not ready to deal with the situation within Russia itself. It was more of a policy of uh, let the Russians stew in their own juice. Now, having said that, why then did the intervention take place? Well, for various reasons. It began, well, historians have debated how it began and why it began, but uh, the basic idea was to prevent Russian stores from falling into the hands of Germany because this all began during the First mm -hmm. World War while it was still going on, uh, to potentially reestablish the Eastern Front to help the Czech and Slovak Legion in Siberia get out of the country and over to the Western Front and so forth. There are many other reasons that, uh, that are given for this. But then it continues after the First World War has ended. And here it's even, the story becomes even more complicated, complicated yet further by the question of what did the whites want from the intervention? What were they expecting? They certainly didn't get what they were expecting. They were expecting to have actual military forces from the Western allies help them fight the war. Whereas what they got was a very half-hearted type of, um, to some degree, simple occupation of the country. And with some question of what the ultimate uh, purpose was because mm. uh, the French, for mm. example, uh, they were sort of hesitant in terms of helping the whites. They transferred eventually most of their attention to trying to build a barrier against Germany because Germany was really what the French were worried about, not Bolshevism so much as Germany. They wanted to transfer their attentions more to building a barrier uh, along Eastern Europe. So in other words, to supporting Romania, yeah. uh, Poland, uh, and the Eastern European countries rather than to supporting the whites. And so there was, as a result, some degree of play with an independent Ukraine, uh, which was anathema to the whites. Uh, and yet uh, there were some French ideas of potentially supporting that as yet another uh, link in this chain against uh, Germany. So there are all sorts of issues involved that uh, that made mm. uh, made things that much more complicated for the whites to try to handle. Thanks, Anasol. Um, we're coming now to uh, the Q&A. Uh, Mike, have you got any uh, questions for us? Uh, we have a question from Olga. Can it be argued that the whites' short-sightedness has anything to do with their ultimate failure? Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know about short-sightedness. Uh, and in general, you know, the argument has been made that uh, the whites were just plain old reactionaries and, and uh, things of this nature. It's it's much more complicated than that. Um, and uh, just um, pinning a label like reactionary onto somebody is not much of an explanation. What I tried to do in my book was to show 
that Kolchak and the others, they were operating based on whatever information they had. And usually it was very poor information, again, gleaned from newspapers and uh, without any real knowledge of what was going on around them, especially in, in Europe at the time. And number two, they were coming at things with their own, uh, their own baggage, uh, so to speak. So for example, for Kolchak, one of the arguments that I make in the book was that, uh, well, and one of the issues that has come up repeatedly in the historiography of the question is why didn't he allow for the independence of Finland, hoping and expecting that General Mannerheim, who at that time was um, the head of state of Finland, um, could potentially throw his troops into the battle and take Petrograd and in that way um, assist Kolchak. So the issue is, why didn't, you know, was Kolchak simply short-sighted? Why didn't he do this? Uh, recognize the independence of Finland and in this way gain the support of General Mannerheim, which could have tipped the scales in the Civil War. This is, you know, an argument that's been made uh, in, uh, in the historiography. But when you go back and look at things, you see that, well, Kolchak actually, he was a naval commander. And he was a naval commander in the tradition of Alfred um, Mann, uh, who was, whose thought on naval strategy at the time was predominant. And Mann's thought was that uh, he needed to have control of the seas in order to be a great power. And this uh, was, uh, you know, the quintessential element of being a great power. And so Kolchak was along these lines uh, thinking, and therefore, the only fleet that uh, could, could really establish Russia as a great power was the Baltic fleet. And in order to have a fleet in the Baltic, you have to have control of both sides of the Baltic, both the north and the south uh, um, entrances to the Gulf of Finland. <laughs> and that meant for Kolchak mm. control of Finland and control of Estonia, which was also vying for independence. So you could say that he was short-sighted, but on the other hand, you could also say that he was far-sighted because what happens later is the Soviet Union establishes a base at uh, Porkalaud and of course takes Estonia um, uh, in, uh, in 1940 and um, as a result regains control of the Baltic. So uh, was Kolchak short-sighted? Was he far-sighted? This is difficult to judge. We can only go at uh, this question from the point of view of what was his thought. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, I'm really compacting things right now because we have so little time. <laughs> but, uh, but basically uh, my point is uh, we really need to know more about what these people were thinking, what they were reading and what position they came uh, from in order to understand better why they were pursuing the policies that they were during this mm. period. Thanks, Anatole. Um, I think this idea of uh, the importance of understanding the mentality, uh, the strategic thinking, the, and, and, the, and the underlying mentality of the people living and carrying out the history that we're looking back on now. That's a very important uh, point. And I perhaps we can all move together, all the panelists can move together now and, and perhaps um, pon ponder uh, uh, about this. Um, uh, Gary or Tanya, have you got any uh, thoughts on the matter? Yes, I. can you hear me? Mm, yes. Uh, okay. Um, I, after reading Anatole's book, 
I went back and read um, the part of my grandpa's memoirs on in Odessa and Kiev, and it made so much more sense. I think the two books together just really yeah. uh, help each other. And I, um, I was struck again by the poor communication and how the vast distances. And I just was concentrated on the Southern because that's what my grandfather was involved with the Southern contingent. But it was so vast. I mean, the Siberian and the, the Northwestern and communication, how expensive uh, a telegram was. And, and today I, I often think what would have happened if they had the internet? I, it, it's just, um, but it really, I, it really brought a lot to uh, thoughts to me. And, and again, I, I would have loved to discuss this with my grandfather and, uh, and he would have, you know, maybe I'm sure he would have learned something too because uh, hmm. <laughs> communication was so primitive. Anyway, that's uh, my thoughts. And uh, so I, I really appreciate the book, Anatole. Yeah. Thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Gary, have you anything to pitch in with at this point? I think not. Um, but I'd be happy to take up other issues if you wish. Um, uh, I was wondering while um, Anatole was speaking and he was talking about uh, Kolchak's uh, mentality and why didn't he do this and that about Finland? And, and there was also a question about, couldn't the whites have brought in the, the Poles to defeat the Russians um, if they'd been a bit more agile? Um, I, I, and uh, I, I don't know what you think about this, but my, my, my inclination is to think that the leaders of the whites were great Russians and they, it never occurred to them to, um, to break up or be responsible for the breakup of the old empire. That's the way they thought. And the curious thing was that the, the Reds, although they said they thought differently, actually they thought exactly the same way. They wanted the empire back in, they wanted to reassemble the land, gather the lands. I think this is a big theme in Russian history. It's, if you look at Putin today, he's a, he's a bit of a land gatherer himself. I see uh, people and nations uh, act in their own perceived self-interest over and over again. I, I don't know, maybe that's, uh, you know, people don't maybe understand the full picture, but uh, we do often mm. operate in our own self-interest. The allies that seem to me were doing that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We Anatole, have we, left. We, uh -huh. yeah, come on in. This is your your topic. I well, I just wanted to uh, to say um, to sort of um, uh, add a little plug for the Hoover archives. Neither my book nor uh, Tanya's uh, grandfather's memoirs would be um, 
really possible without the work of the Hoover Institution Archives and, uh, of course, the press, uh, which did such a fantastic job with both books. But the archives are particularly significant. Uh, and in my case, my book would not have been possible at all without the Hoover Institution Archives. It's only because Herbert Hoover founded the institution at that time, the Hoover mm -hmm. War Library in 1919, to collect materials on the causes and consequences of the First World War that these collections that I used so much in my book were acquired and maintained and preserved for this length of time and really made the research possible. And so from that point of view, it's just so important to underscore the importance, well, important to underscore the importance, sorry about that, of, of the archives as a resource, uh, because really scholars from the world over come to use mm -hmm. these collections. Some of them remain unused for years and decades, and then suddenly yeah. they come into very uh, popular use and uh, are used over and over again to write book after book on various subjects with various approaches. And in my particular case, it's the archives of the Russian embassy in the United States, the archives of the Russian embassy in France, uh, Vasily Maklakov's own private papers, as well as many other collections, the Gears papers, Gears was the Russian ambassador to Italy, that are so important for the study and continued scholarship uh, that, um, that the research community puts out. So uh, a big uh, thank you to the archives for which I work and I'm so proud of. <laughs> I, I'd like to second that. Uh, I it's the most remarkable archive. Uh, I worked for many years in Moscow archives thinking this was the only place to go for Russian and Soviet history, but um, the Hoover archive is, is, is the West's great depository of Russian and Soviet uh, and East European uh, materials. It's the most remarkable place. And I hope when this COVID uh, plague is finished, that um, as many people listening to this as possible will, 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 will go to Hoover at Stanford and, 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 and use these really remarkable uh, archives. They are the most wonderful resource for the world, especially now that it's getting trickier to get sensitive material, politically sensitive material in Moscow itself. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Anatole. Um, would any panelists like to, I can't see all of you. Um, Gary, would you like to um, make well, any comment? I, I would like to, uh meditate for a moment on the um, tension that grows between elites who have uh, the responsibility of making foreign policy and uh, uh, taxation and supplying the military in order to back up their foreign policy and uh, common people who have to pay the taxes and bear the burdens of military service. Um, it seems to me the Russian case is a vivid example of the tensions and almost the contradictions 
between ambitious foreign policy aims and uh, uh, domestic health. And uh, um, the czarist regime wanted, of course, a great Russia and to maintain and expand the empire. Uh, the white generals wanted a strong and united Russia to face the world. But Alferia's uh, memoirs, uh, somebody asked when they were written from 1946 to 1962, uh, roughly based on internal evidence in the book and without diary. Alferia's um, memoirs point out that wars are won and lost with the education of common people. And I think he would have said, were he to use our language with the communication of a sense of uh, dignity for the common people. And um, he says at one point in discussing the Battle of Tannenberg, uh, which Russia uh, lost as a debacle for the Second Army and for the Imperial cause, that if positions would have been reversed, the Germans would have won. And not so much because of uh, technical means that the Germans had, but because common people were educated, soldiers uh, were well-trained, and because they'd internalized to a greater extent than common Russian people, the uh, purposes of, of the war. So, you know, as, as we meditate on big questions, let's, let's think about that tension and controversy, uh, contradiction possibly between inner and outer politics. Thank you. Um, I think we've got a few, um, a few moments. If, if there are any questions from our respected uh, listeners, uh, out there in the in the blue ether. Yes, we have. Uh, we combined two questions on a similar topic from Christopher and Fred. Um, is there anything distinctly taught, distinctively taught by the Russian Revolution and the forces that brought it about, and eventually led down such a bloody path? Why are so many Western intellectuals ignorant of the monumental tragedy of all that Marx, Lenin, and Stalin brought? to their own people and the world. Well, you know, potentially only to say that all revolutions are tragedies, they ultimately lead to human suffering, uh, very often on a grand scale that, uh, that uh, is difficult even to comprehend, uh, both to contemporaries as well as to those who come later. So certainly the proper path is a path of uh, reform and uh, of, uh, of peaceful change. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, and it's really regretful that anyone continues to look at a revolution as a desirable event, because uh, once again, revolutions only lead to tragedy and to great human suffering. Uh, and I guess, <laughs> I guess that's uh, kind of the only uh, 
overarching uh, thing that I could uh, that I could answer to that question. It's possible to think of uh, two sorts of injustices, right? And there's the injustice that stems from inequality and privilege in in most advanced societies and one doesn't like to, if one is a Western intellectual, like to see that continue. And so there's a temptation um, to not only to reform, but to uh, knock over and topple the unjust regime. But then there's the injustice of the kind that uh, Anatole was talking about which is consequent on the chaos of revolution and the, the actual process of toppling regimes. So they're, they're suffering either way. And uh, I suppose uh, one of the exciting things about reading history, especially of a regime like the Russian regime, is that you can engage uh, in the specific, that uh, that kind of problem. I think that'd be a good point to uh, draw the uh, proceedings to a close. And I must do that by thanking everyone from our brilliant translator and granddaughter of uh, Alfieriev, um, Tanya Alexandra Cameron. Uh, I must thank Gary Hamburg for his excellent um, background essay, which brings uh, the whole memoir into focus. And I must thank, obviously, also Anatole Shmilyov for his uh, great new book, which plugs a big, big hole in the whole uh, history of post-October Revolution uh, Russia. It's been a, a magnificent um, experience for me and I think for uh, all, all of us uh, listening in to them and uh, watching them. And so thank you very much for your work and thank you very much for uh, the wonderful presentation uh, that you've made and thank you to Mr. Zoom for making it possible for this to happen between London N8 and uh, California. Uh, this is terrific. Um, the book, should you be uh, interested in purchasing it, is available. Both books are uh, available and there's a special code that you have to uh, plug in. It's coming up on uh, the screen now, 211REWR, and you get 30% off the uh, normal retail price when you, when you purchase it on the, the Hoover site. So it's quite a good deal, actually. Um, I've just noticed, I, um, looking at the picture on uh, the Russia in War and Revolution book, that there is a family resemblance between the author and uh, the translator, 
um, Tanya, uh, uh, definitely you can see the family uh, resemblance. But quite apart from that, these two books are really well worth purchasing. There's a lot in them that we haven't talked about that is of equal interest to that which we have talked about. So thank, thank you all, all of you who have um, made your contributions this evening. Uh, it's morning for you, I realize now. It's morning for you, it's evening for me here. Uh, and thank you to uh, our audience uh, for coming along uh, televisually. Uh, uh, and many thanks to all the staff at Hoover who, who uh, made it possible. Thank you very much. <laughs>